morning. Welcome to Convergent Church. My name is Jameson. It's wonderful to be here with you this morning. I see some new faces. I pray that you feel welcome this morning at our church. If you're joining us for the first time, we are walking through uh, the Gospel of John in a series we've called Walking with the Word. We've been taking sort of a deep dive at the life and teaching and faith of Jesus as he walks with his disciples. And uh, we're actually coming to a close here in the next couple weeks. Um, I think Pastor Dan's preaching next week. That'll be the last message in our series, and then we'll be on to Advent. Who's ready for Christmas? Nobody. Oh, man. Tough crowd. I'm ready for Christmas. I'm mostly ready for Christmas because it's a season of giving, and that's something we've been trying to convince our family of. It's a season of giving. Well, this week, I want to talk to you about a great gift that God has given us. I want you to imagine a scene with me, if you would. Imagine that you're standing at the gates of heaven. Around you are millions of people who have recently passed. And before you looms the large and glorious gates of the afterlife. And as you look at these gates, these gates begin to open. And bright light cascades out from the gates, and you realize that within that amazing light stands God himself. As the gates open, everyone around you begins to rush towards the gates, trying to get into the door. And as you clamor to get in, God stretches his arms out wide and bars the way. And as you desperately claw to try and get past this, you see that God is in fact allowing some of the people he is barring through. You see that God is purposely choosing to let some into heaven, but unfortunately, not you. And not many of the people around you. How would that make you feel? How do you feel right now? How would it make you feel to know that God is excluding people who would otherwise desire eternal life? Now, I'm guessing, if you're like me, it probably wouldn't make you feel very good. The reason I want to paint this picture for you today before we start is because we're going to dive into one of the most misunderstood and yet what I believe to be one of the most glorious doctrines in all of the Bible. This essential teaching of Scripture has anchored my faith for many a year. It has brought me through times of sin and sorrow, through moments of loss and temptation. It has carried me through seasons where I was waffling in and out of repentance. And in, in every victory I've had in my life, I, I look to this doctrine and it anchors who I am in God. I'm speaking about the doctrine of divine election. Now I realize that for some of you, this may be your first time hearing of this doctrine, and for others, this may be a contentious point. I would like to briefly explain the doctrine by saying this. The doctrine of divine election is a teaching found throughout the Bible that insists that the reason that anyone finds saving faith in Christ is due to God's sovereign decision to choose that person to receive eternal life through the work of Jesus, and that it is God's work alone. One of the things we highly prize here at Convergent Church is preaching through books of the Bible. And you might ask why. We preach through books of the Bible because it constrains our pastors to confront difficult teachings that are in it. When you have your personal devotions or you're, you're reading the Bible by yourself, you might come up against a hard topic or a hard question, and you may write it down and set it aside and say, what? I'll figure that out later. But when we faithfully preach through books of the Bible, it does not allow us to set aside the difficult doctrines and the difficult teachings in Scripture for later. It means that when the topic naturally comes up in Scripture that the pastors here at Convergent Church get to do the hard job of doing our best to explain it 
clearly for you because we love you and we've promised to lead you in this way. And that's what I'm going to attempt to do today. You know, Charles Spurgeon once said, It's true that in the scriptures there are great mysteries where your leviathans may dive and find no bottom. But the knowledge of the deep things is not essential for salvation, or else few of us would be saved. I want to encourage you today that should you walk away with your head spinning, or your heart pounding, or your doubt elevated, take heart. Understanding the deep doctrines of Scripture saves no one. Let me say that again. Understanding the deep doctrines of Scripture saves no one. What brings salvation is simple repentance of one's sins and faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. If you've done that, let your heart rest. And I pray you are encouraged as we answer the question, who is responsible for my salvation? Let's pray quickly before we begin. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, we are so, so thankful for what you've done in our lives. And God, today we have a task before us. Lord, we are confronting a glorious teaching in your scripture that is oftentimes hard to understand and hard to reconcile. And so, Lord, we pray that you bring the Holy Spirit here. Lord, aid me in my speaking that I would say nothing that is untrue. And Lord, soften our hearts and open our eyes and our ears to receive what you have for us. Lord, help me be faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus has, has sort of been on a ministry tour of sorts in the first six chapters of John. He's been moving from place to place. He's been performing various miracles. And along the way, he's been teaching his disciples what it means to have faith. As Jesus performs these various miracles, his popularity has grown. And a large crowd begins to follow Jesus. Jesus meets them on a mountainside and he teaches them for most of the day until their stomachs begin to get hungry. And the Bible tells us he looks out on the crowd and he has compassion upon them. And he feeds all 15 to 20,000 people by multiplying five loaves of bread and two fish. It's a great miracle. The next day, Jesus hops in a boat and he goes over the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum and he sits down in a synagogue, which is the Jewish place of worship, and he begins to teach the Jews there. And naturally, all of these people whom he had fed follow him to the synagogue and sit to listen. Jesus tells them that the reason they came seeking him was not because they believed he could save them, but because he had given them bread. It would seem that no matter how many blessings, how many miracles, how much truth, how much clarity Jesus brings to their life, these Jews that sit before him continue in disbelief. They come seeking a meal. They don't want a master. They came seeking physical security, not spiritual salvation. They came and they listened, but they didn't want what Jesus had to offer. And the question we must answer is, why? Why, despite the mounting evidence that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, why, in the face of all the benefits that Jesus brings to their lives, why, in the face of the fact that he enriches every day that he's with them by his mere presence, do these people continue to reject Jesus? Why? I know as we've been walking through the, the book of John, many of you have been like, what is wrong with you guys? Just believe already. Place your faith in Christ and let's get the job over with. We've been watching them do this week after week after week, and yet they continue to reject Jesus. Why? Let's find out. Reading from John Chapter 6, verses 37 through 43, it says this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. One of the first things we see in this text is that the elect have been given to Jesus by God. There is a group of people who before the creation of the world were chosen by God as a precious possession. They were not chosen by God based on what they would or would not do. They were not chosen based on whether or not they would choose to believe in God and honor him. They were not chosen based on merit or skill or potential or pedigree or race or nationality. But they were chosen because of God's hidden divine purposes. God did not look down the corridor of time to see who would believe in him and then choose the most willing candidates. Paul would explain it like this. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 7 says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which we've been blessed in the beloved. Here we encounter the term predestination. And that term predestination simply means chosen beforehand. Paul exclaims that it was God's love that compelled him to elect, to choose, to adopt these children before the foundation of everything. He desired that they be made holy like his son Jesus. He desired that they be considered blameless as Jesus is blameless. It says that he did this through the work of his son Jesus on the cross who lived a perfectly holy life who died in the place of sinners to redeem them from their sin and then rose again after three days in resurrection to secure their resurrection. And God did this not only because of his love for his children before the foundation of the world, but he did this predominantly because of his love for his son and for the glory of his son, Jesus this is what Paul means when he says that he's done it to the praise of his glorious grace. God's children, those chosen, the elect, they are a love gift from the Father to the Son. That's what they are. They're chosen by God, and they would be saved by the love of Jesus. They'd be held secure in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, and they'd be redeemed for the fame of Jesus. How many of you know that you are not simply saved from something, but you are saved to something? You are saved for the glory of Jesus, predominantly, and by God's love. Christian, before there was time, before there was space, before there was dark or light, before emptiness or fullness was considered, before stars or universes or nebulas, before oceans or mountains or blades of grass, before creeping things and crawling things and swimming things and flying things, God was. And God knew all that would happen because he is the author of all that would be. Nothing existed outside of God's will, and nothing took place outside of his plans. God knew you. Think about that. Before anything was created, God knew you. Though you did not yet exist, you existed in God's heart, and you existed in God's mind. Your name was written in his book of life like a, a character in a story that God was writing. Your story 
would include many ups and downs, many trials of temptations, many moments of heartbreak, but your destiny was written in his book of life. And God had a wonderful plan for your life, and he loved you with a special love. Am I blowing your mind yet? How can we explain this kind of love that God had for his children in eternity past? The best way I can explain this kind of love is the kind of love that a mother has for her unborn child. Mothers, how many of you, before your children were born, perhaps even before you were pregnant, picked out a name for your children? How many of you dreamed of what their face might look like before you even saw an ultrasound? How many of you dreamed about what their voice might sound like the day they took their first steps or made their first coup? Mothers, of course you did because you loved them. Many of you imagined their first day of school their first broken bone, their first kiss, their first heartbreak. Many of you had dreams about what college they would go to. And some of you have not even had children yet, and yet you're dreaming about what kind of person your child might marry. In your heart, you treasured all of these things because you loved that child before you ever even saw their face. But we are created beings. Our dreams of potential futures are just that. They're dreams. We have no control over what actually happens. But God is not limited as we are. He's the author of creation. He's all-powerful, unstoppable, unimpedable. He stands outside of time and space, and he is not limited to the physical realm. The dreams of God's heart, what we might call God's will, his plans become reality because he's sovereign and he is in control. And so God chose a people to belong to his son and, and they were given life by his son like the roots give nourishment and life to the branches of a tree. Before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed to God a prayer we know as the high priestly prayer. It's in John 17. I think it's one of the most beautiful works of the human tongue that have ever been written, and I believe that it is the most important prayer that has ever been prayed by human lips. And in this prayer, Jesus asked the Father some key things. In John 17, 5 and 6, he says this, And now, Father, perk up, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. John 17, 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Christian, you are a love gift from father to son. You have always been held in God's hands. You were chosen before the creation of the world so that through your life Christ might be glorified. This should bring immense comfort to our souls, knowing that our salvation is a gift from God to the Son whom he loves, that he handpicked us out of the world, not based on anything we've done or anything we would do, simply because God said, Jesus, I love you and I want to give you a gift. And we are Jesus' prized possessions. Let's continue on in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. The second thing we see here is the elect will come to Jesus because the Father draws them. Those chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world will come to Jesus because it is the Father who is drawing them in. And when Jesus says that no one can come to him, what he's saying is no one has the capacity to repent and believe and express faith in what Jesus has done. And when Jesus says no one can come to him, he means no one. He does not mean a special few. He does not mean 99% of the human race cannot come to me. He means no one. Not me, not you, not our president, not the most famous person you know. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. And that's our first sub-point. We are unable to come to God on our own. No one who lives or has lived or will live can come to faith in Christ on their own. The Bible does not describe humanity as a people who are free to come and express faith in Christ whenever we desire. But instead, it expresses us as a people who are desperately enslaved to their sin. Our freedom to choose God is non-existent because our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our bodies serve a different master. They serve sin. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin is a falling short of God's righteous standard. It's not doing or living or being in the way that God says we should. And Jesus says that when we walk in it, we become slaves to it. In our natural state, we love this master sin. We're content to live under his cruel tyranny because we believe that the slavery that he holds us in is actually freedom. We do what we feel is good. We, we burst out and rage out at people in anger. We steal things that don't belong to us. We covet things that don't belong to us. We poison our bodies. We manipulate and use people around us and we abuse them for our own selfish gain because we feel that this is what freedom looks like. We're blind to our fallen nature and we are unable to escape sin's clutches on our own. Paul said in the book of Romans, quoting the Old Testament prophet David, he said, in Romans 3, 10, and 11, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So if you think I'm preaching a harsh message this morning, I'm just reading scripture. Not only do we not seek God, but we do not have the power to seek God. And not only do we not have the power to seek God, we do not have the desire to seek God. We are not good. On our own, we are impossibly hopeless. But despite our inability to come on our own, many of us do come. How is it that the Bible says we are unable to come to God, yet many of us have come to God? Many of us here in this room enjoy the fellowship of Christ. We enjoy the fellowship of the Spirit. We live under the adoption of our Father, and we enjoy that life. How is it that we have come to this? Well, it's because our Father in heaven has used his sovereign power to overcome our will to sin. And he's drawn us to believe in Jesus. The means by which he's drawn us to believe in Jesus is the means by which he saves us, and it's by giving us his word. It's by showing us the gospel. Jesus said in verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He's talking about spiritual revelation. Everyone whom the Father has shown the glory of the Son and the wonder of the gospel runs to me. And this is the second sub-point. God uses the gospel to draw his elect to saving faith in Jesus. That word 
draw that's used in verse 44 is used elsewhere in the Gospel of John. It's used in John 21, 11, and it's used to describe the way the apostles draw in a huge catch of fish onto their boat. They're drawing in these fish onto the deck of their boat. And I want you to think about what your life was like before you encountered Jesus. Now, I know some of you grew up in the church, and you're like, Jesus has always been there. I'm talking about the moment where you know that you belong to Jesus. Where were you before you heard the gospel with clarity, and it opened your eyes to the glory of who God is? Where were you before salvation? Who were you? What were you like? Like fish swimming around in murky depths, many of us were content to stay in the darkness that we found ourselves in. In the dark, shadowy waters of sin, we had everything we needed. We were content. But then a moment came, and we found ourselves wrapped up in the net of God's election. And like any, of, any fish, how many of you tried to run from God? I did. How many of you tried to run from God? You tried to resist, you tried to break free, but his net was too strong and you were caught. Moving away from the analogy for just a moment, Christian, when, when you were caught up in the net of God's election, when you were being drawn in by God, what happened in your heart as he drew you in? I know what happened in your heart. Because it's the same thing that happened in my heart as he drew me in. All my years of running from God ceased and I stopped trying to escape what God desired for me. I no longer wanted to run from God as I had. I knew nothing else in all this world could save me or satisfy me. I knew that I was being wrapped up in freedom. I was not being wrapped up in slavery. On the contrary, I was being released from the bondage of my old master, sin, and my heart towards God changed where I once would have continually fled from God's presence because I was scared and I was ashamed and I didn't know what to do, now I knew there was nowhere else I could go. And I know for many of you, that happened to you as well. I credit my salvation not only to God, but to a wonderful family here in Owasso, the Wheeler family. Many of you know them. I was a terrible child. I had a terrible life. I had no desire to serve God. I had no desire to know God. And I was the neighbor of these wonderful people called the Wheelers. And they saw my depravity and they saw my raging and they saw all my disobedience and all these terrible things I was doing because I was a product of my environment. And they persisted to pray for me. And do you know how long they prayed for me? 20 years. They faithfully prayed for me. And when I came to Christ, when I finally received salvation, one of their daughters, Katie, she came and she hugged me and she said, my parents have been praying for you for 20 years that you would turn and you would run to Jesus. Now, that's a beautiful story, but what were they praying? What were they praying? They were praying that God would sovereignly overcome my desires and place a new desire in my heart. That's what they were praying. They were praying that Jameson's will would not be done, but that God's will would be done in my life. And it's because of their prayers that God answered and he saved me. And what was familiar to me became detestable. What was normal was seen as deplorable. And, and what I enjoyed doing, I found no comfort in. And God's word began to change me. And I know the same thing happened to you. you. You started to become a new person because God drew you in by his grace and he showed you the gospel and he supplied you the faith you needed to believe. And you might say, well, Pastor Jameson, I, I came to God. It was my choice to come to God. And I would say, yes, it was your choice to come to God. 
But it was a choice made entirely possible and effectual by God's spirit moving in your heart and your mind to see God in a new way, to see God in a different way that you had not considered or desired before. Before God, you would not have chosen him. And after God, you did. You came to Jesus because the Father drew you to Jesus so you might live. You see, the scene we started with today, the scene where God stands at the gates of heaven with his arms out wide, barring the way for some to enter, it's a false reality. Yet it's how many people feel when they hear the doctrine of election for the first time. How could God stand there and bar the way? My friends, it's fake news. It's not true. It's never happened. Nothing could be further from the truth. God does not stand at the gates of heaven with his arms out wide, barring entry. He stands at the gates of heaven, calling out to all the world, saying, everyone, come to me and find life. Come to me, repent of your sins. Come and believe in Jesus. And did you know what happens? Not a single person comes. Not one. Because all of us are running headlong towards the gates of hell. Everyone to a man. God's yelling, run to me, come and find life. And no one will, so what he does is he reaches out in his grace and he says, no, come. No, you, Emily, come. No, Blake, come. Julie, come. And he turns our hearts so that they're now inclined to run towards him, to run from our sin and run from the gates of hell and run towards the gates of heaven instead. My friends, election keeps no one out of heaven who would have otherwise been there. But election keeps countless billions out of hell. Countless billions. If it were not for God's election, if it were not for God choosing some, heaven would be a bleakly empty place. It would be Jesus and God and the Father and the Spirit staring at each other going, this is great. No one's here, but we're content. It would be totally empty and hell would be bursting at the seams. And my friends, this is cause to rejoice. It's not cause to lament. And you might ask the question, well, why does God not give everybody the ability to believe? Why does he only work in some of our lives? I think an illustration by, by Pastor Alan Krushner is very helpful. He says this. This is his analogy. He says, say you have 100 death row criminals. They're all equally guilty and deserving of death. Every single one of them hates the president. So much so that all of them conspired together and successfully killed his only son. And one of those criminals is you. The president has the freedom and the right to pardon you or anyone else. It could be one person. It could be 10 people. It could be all 100 people. Or it could be nobody. If he chooses to pardon none of them, would he be just in doing so? Yes, he would. Because they are all guilty he is not obliged to choose between a dilemma of bestowing mercy either on all 100 of them or none of them. He could choose any number between 1 and 100 if that is his will. He can do whatever he wishes because he has the right to do so as president. But let's say out of those 100 people, he chooses 10 of those that justly deserve death. Now, those 10 who are chosen and pardoned, are they not just as guilty as the 90 who are not pardoned? They are just as guilty as the 90 who are not pardoned. And one of those 10 to be graciously pardoned is you. And you're free. You're pardoned. You're running into new life. You've been given a second chance. You've been granted mercy. And as you're stepping out of that prison cell into freedom, are we then going to look back and say to the president, how dare you pardon me and not everyone else? Alan writes, you would be an ungrateful fool 
and we would. God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God is not obligated to pardon anyone, yet he is gracious because he pardons many. He would be perfectly just to allow every rebel heart to perish, and yet he redeems those he chooses. So church, let us praise God for the mercy we have found. The last thing we see in this text is that the elect will be raised by Jesus on the last day. Let's read verses 49 through 59. It says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. So this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that no one, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and as I live because the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So here's the question many people ask. Is Jesus asking us to now become cannibals? that we might receive eternal life? Is he asking these people in his presence to come? And it would seem on the surface that he was, and that is certainly how they took it, because the truth of this text is spiritually discerned, and their eyes were not open to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus came to secure eternal life for all God's elect. And this had been God's will from before the foundation of the world, and, and Jesus will accomplish it. What Jesus is saying here is that he is the all-satisfying spiritual equivalent of the manna that God gave the Israelites in the wilderness. He's saying that I can satisfy you like my father satisfied your fathers in the desert. He's saying, I too am a miraculous but even greater provision that without it, just like your fathers in the wilderness, you will die. He's speaking in hyperbole. When he speaks of eating his body and drinking his blood, he's not really speaking about that. He's speaking about trusting him and believing in him. Think of it this way. When you sit down to have a meal after a hard day's work, you sit down and you eat that meal trusting that that meal will sustain you. You trust that that meal is real food something that is going to preserve and continue to give you life. Jesus is saying the same thing. He's saying to eat of Jesus means that Jesus will satisfy you and he will sustain you. By his broken body and his shed blood on the cross, he will give life to you and he will continue to give life for you. He's saying that only those who are willing to be sustained by him will be given eternal life. And he's calling for a decision. He's telling the gathered Jews and these disciples that they must be willing to abandon all other forms of sustenance, to abandon all other forms of satisfaction. They must be willing to abandon all other thoughts of being saved by anything else and find their new life in him. And Jesus says that those who do believe in him and trust him as they would trust their next meal will be given this eternal life. If we look back on verses 37 through 39, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Parents, how frustrated do you get when you cook an amazing meal for your children and they stare at it and go, I don't want it. I don't want that. That's us. And so God changes our desires, changes our palate to now desire to find life in Jesus. 
And we can follow Jesus' train of thought. He says, all those the Father chooses before the foundation of the world have been given to me. The reason that they come to me is because my Father is drawing them in. And whoever is drawn into me by the Father will never perish because they will be sustained by my life-giving power and they'll be held in my Father's mighty hands. They will believe in me and I will raise them up on the last day. That's Jesus' train of thought. In John 27, 29, Jesus equates the elect, the people of God, as a flock of sheep given to him as a gift by his Father and Jesus, their shepherd. He says this, he says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And get this, my friends, be encouraged by this. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. My friends, if you have been chosen by God, not based on goodness or ability or pedigree, and though you were once a rebel, you were drawn to God by his sovereign power. And through the, the working of his spirit in your life, you were made to trust in Jesus, having believed that he alone can save you. I'll say what Dan said last week. You cannot lose that salvation. You cannot. My friends, how prideful are we to believe that we can lose what we did not work to gain? You cannot be unchosen. Some of you have adopted children. Which one of you would unadopt them? We cannot be unchosen because the choice never depended on us to begin with. You cannot lose what was won for you. Salvation was God's desire, and he will have his way. The dreams of his heart become reality. And what that means for us is that we are safe in the heart of God. And though we may try to run, though we will at times rebel against him again, he will keep calling us back because we belong to him. God's grace will consistently overcome our sinfulness. Your salvation is secure because God is responsible for it from start to finish. And so when we ask the question, who's responsible for my salvation? God alone, period, full stop. Don't add anything. Amen. God alone. The hymnist wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thine courts above. We are safe. I know I've been preaching for a while, but I'd like to deal with a few questions because I know you have them. If I cannot lose my salvation, does that mean no matter what I do, I'll be saved? The answer to that question is no. Often when we hear we cannot lose our salvation... The temptation is to then believe that we can wander in sin and do as we please because God will be all gracious. Two texts in John help us to answer this question. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 1 John 3, 6 through 8. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. John points out, rightly, that everyone struggles with sin. We all fall to its temptation, but as Christians, when we do, we can confess those sins, look them in the eye, and through Christ, God will forgive us as we acknowledge them. John says if we persist in sin, we make it clear that we do not know and have never known Jesus. Now the problem arises that though many of us confess our sins, many of us still do persist in sin, do we not? 
Many of us struggle with the same temptations, the same sins, the same failures for many seasons of life. And some of us, though we are in Christ, will struggle with some of the same sins for our entire life. Does that mean we are not chosen? Hardly. If we persist in sin without care, without remorse, without a hatred of it, if we persist in sin content to live as though Christ did not die, to separate us not only from the consequences of sin, the forgiveness of sin, but from the slavery of sin, true freedom, there is a possibility that you have not been saved at all. If you have come to Christ and nothing has changed and you are the same man, the same woman, there is a possibility that you have not actually come to Christ. But that does not mean you are not chosen. It means you have not fully given yourself over to the Lord. Those whom Christ has chosen despise their sin because it's their sin that drove Jesus to suffer on the cross. They fight their sin. They confess their sin. They seek help in overcoming their sin. They join in a fellowship of people who are also overcoming their sins. They're no longer content to live under sin's cruel slavery. And though they struggle at times, and though they fail at times, sometimes desperately fail, the upward trajectory of their life over time is towards holiness, not away from it. Are you tracking with me? Towards holiness. Not perfection today, but over time, towards Christ-likeness. Not away from it. And even in that pursuit of holiness, they're always holding on to the faith that it's Christ alone that saves them, not their overall performance in any given season of life. If you judge me based on the worst seasons of life, I am condemned. <laughs> Amen? And I'm sure you are as well. Our overall trajectory is towards holiness. I want to leave you with three points of application. The first point of application is to examine yourself. Peter wrote this in 2 Peter 1.10. He said, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. You may be thinking right now, am I elected by God? Did God choose me? The answer is simple. Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you truly done that? Not simply lip service because your friends are at church. Not simply doing it because it's what you've done since you came out of the womb. But have you truly given your life over to Jesus? If you've done this, you can be sure that you are chosen. You can be sure that you are elected because those who are not chosen cannot do this. They cannot come to God without God first working in their lives. The second point of application is this. Share the gospel. One of the greatest jabs that people will take at the doctrine of election is that it nullifies the need for evangelism. You may be thinking, if God is sovereign and everyone he chooses to come, it's going to happen. He's in charge. Why do we need to share the gospel? They're just going to come in. Well, here's the answer. God is sovereign not over only the ends, but the means. He's sovereign over the end of the story as well as the whole thing up to that point. If the end is, is salvation for an individual, then the means through how they hear the gospel and become saved is through us speaking it. It's through us speaking it or posting it, or writing it, or sharing it, and living it. It's all of these things. People come to Christ through the gospel, and the only way anyone can believe in Jesus is through hearing that good news of his life, death, and resurrection. So do not let the doctrine of election be this wet blanket that's thrown over your zeal for evangelism. No, let it be gasoline that fuels your desire to share Christ with others. Because you know that there are those in the world in your workplace, in your family, at your school, whom God has chosen to receive eternal life, and the way he's going to draw them in is by you telling them about Jesus. And it's not going to be on how good your presentation is or whether or not you know everything to say or whether or not you have the right words. It's going to be because you were willing to talk about Jesus. 
and the Spirit decides to work in their lives. Be encouraged. And we preach a whosoever will gospel here. Whosoever will believe. We preach that because we know that God can save anyone. Amen? Anyone. And we have no idea who they will be. And so we preach the gospel to everyone as though they will be our next brother and sister in Christ. No holds barred, full stop. Everyone gets the gospel and God draws his elect in. Lastly, let election be a great reason to love and exalt God. I want to leave you with this quote by Spurgeon. A lot of Spurgeon this week. He said this. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Church, we owe all to God. All of our salvation. And so let us praise him and give thanks and be of grateful hearts as though it's true. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, where would we be without you? Where would we be? Lord, like orphans trapped in a system of our own design, we would be content with what we knew. But Lord, then you came and you adopted us and you pulled us out of the world and you brought us into your marvelous light. You worked in our hearts. You gave us new affections. You caused our eyes to see your glory. You caused our palates to salivate for holiness and righteousness. Lord, you began to clear our minds away from the clutter that sin had put there, and you began to renew our thinking. And God, you have set us on a trajectory towards heaven. And this is all you. Lord, today, may we be a church that bows in deep, deep reverence. For we are criminals, pardoned and given new life. Lord, help us to take this reality into the world. To share the gospel with those who are also perishing. That those whom you've chosen might be drawn in. Lord, help us to do this with no pride and with no with no haughtiness, Lord, but in complete grace, knowing that if it were not for you, we would perish. Let us be a humble people and a gracious people and a loving people, for you have lavished your love upon us. And Lord, we are grateful, and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.